Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, Harvest KL. It's so good to be back preaching with you again here today. It's been a little while, and uh, I certainly have uh, felt a little bit of a, of a longing to get back to preaching uh, for you, uh, filling in uh, for you at this particular time. And so I'm super grateful to be back preaching in the Book of Philippians, the series that you've been doing. Uh, I just want to say at the beginning, uh, my family and I miss you immensely, and we continue uh, to to uh, to really. Uh, just long to be with you and be a part of your church and and all that's going on there. I know that there's some new faces. Uh, some of you are new to your church, and so I'm a stranger to you. Um, but for all the years that we had uh, previously been pastoring there in KL, uh, we still very much love you dearly, love you deeply, very much concerned for you. I was even reflecting a little bit. It was about a year ago that we were announcing that we were going to have to move on, and uh, all the uncertainty about where the church was going to go and be at that moment uh, was very much heavy upon us. And I uh, appreciate that the that we can see the Lord has provided for you over this last year. Uh, maybe not exactly the way we all envisioned or thought, but the Lord has provided. Uh, and, and in that, we're going to trust him to continue to provide. And so as you have been about this uh, prayer campaign, I want you to know that I also have been joining in with you on that, just really seeking the Lord's direction uh, for Harvest KL and what the future holds, and really believing that the Lord is going to answer in a clear way in a way that we can all one day look back and say we know very clearly the Lord was directing us in that moment. And so trusting by faith in the Lord in those things and I uh, want you to know laboring alongside of you and uh, and that's because we care about you and uh, very much uh, concerned for you and and, uh, and want the best for you in the coming days. So um, uh, with you in all of those things. Uh, that being said, uh, I want you to turn your in your Bibles uh, to the book of Philippians. Uh, we've been doing this study together, um, and uh, you've been doing this study, and uh, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter three here today, and so um, I want you to, uh, to focus in on that, but also notice that... Um, uh, that this is really a continuation of what you would have been uh, learning from last Sunday in the first 11 verses. And really in the first 11 verses, Paul's been talking about how uh, the best thing that's possible in this life is to know Jesus Christ. He would give up everything else in life to, to know Jesus Christ. And he for sure would give up the religious practices of his upbringing and, 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 and convert to just a faith in Jesus Christ because of the grace gift that he's given to us that by believing in him, there would be salvation. And so even at the end of uh, the section that you studied last week in verse 10, it says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We're, we're going to pick up on this theme here today. And, and Paul's basically saying, because I can attain the resurrection from the dead through belief and faith in Jesus Christ, how do we live now? What does that mean for now? And uh, actually, a lot of people who've studied Philippians think that there was perhaps this, uh, I would maybe call it a little bit of a laziness that had 
crept into the church where they begin to think because of faith in Jesus Christ and there's nothing else that saves us and it's just Jesus, we can just kind of relax and coast through the rest of life. And that's not what Paul's saying at all. What we're going to see here today that he is saying, you're going to have to strain and work hard because of your position that you have through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to have to strain towards the goal. That's actually the title of the message here today. Uh, Your elders, uh, as we assign the passages, assigned uh, really this theme, the idea of straining towards the goal from this particular paragraph of scripture. And, And so we're going to do that today. We're going to learn what it means to strain towards the goal of Christ-likeness. Actually, uh, Paul uses an illustration as he unpacks this idea of straining, and it's one of physical activity. It's actually a physical activity that he speaks of often in his letters. It's the idea of running. And he says, you're going to have to run the race. And when you run the race, it's not going to be an easy, comfortable thing. You're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to strain to accomplish this. We're going to define that here in just a second, but I was thinking about running races. And at one point in my young adult life, I thought it might be kind of cool to take up the hobby of running. And uh, what I learned in trying to take up the hobby of running is that I actually hate running. And um, it's actually no fun whatsoever. And uh, I bless you if you love running and that's your hobby. That's not mine. That's what I learned. But in the process of learning, I, I decided to enter into a race. And, uh, and I entered into the Wheaton uh, 5K, and uh, it was a 5K race that I entered myself into. And so I began to work for that. And in the weeks leading up to it, I was practicing. I got a, a running uh, program to tell me how much to run each day to be ready to run this race. And then I made a huge mistake. Right before I ran the race, the night before, my wife and I went out on a date, and we went to this restaurant and had this great food. And, um, and I probably ate too much, and it just didn't sit right. So when I showed up, to the race the next day, early in the morning, 7.30, showed up to the race, I had to run and strain and work so much harder than all the practice runs because I just wasn't feeling good to do it. Like just to complete the race, I had to work extra hard because I wasn't feeling so well at the moment. But you know, it paid off. I was able to finish the race. And that hasn't always been the case for me. I I think about another time um, when I gave up. Have you ever given up on something? I remember when I was fifth or sixth grade in, in elementary school and primary school, uh, the mountain behind where my school was uh, had a World War II airplane that had wrecked on the mountain and it was actually in really good condition. And it was well known that it was up at the top of the mountain in good condition. And so my friends and I were like, we want to go see this. We, we want to take the journey to go see it. And so we started hiking up this mountain and it was like this really steep, straight up climbing that we were doing. And we were probably four hours in. And, um, and I just remember... At the halfway point, uh, a few hours before, I was ready to give up and my friends were like, no, let's keep going. And then, and then at the three quarter point, I was just so exhausted, I turned around and went down the mountain. I did not achieve the goal. I, I did not keep working hard and I gave up. And guess what? I've never seen that wreck. I've never seen that airplane. I, I don't know what it looks like because I never got there I didn't strain towards the goal. I didn't keep working hard towards the goal. And as we run the race of the Christian life, Paul tells us in this passage that we're going to have to not give up 
and instead keep working hard to work our, out our salvation in this. And, and this is really something consistent with what the Bible teaches all around. The Bible tells us how to live the Christian life until we enter a glorified state, until we die and, and go and be with Jesus in heaven. It tells us how to live life here on earth. And, and the reality is it can be hard work. And so this passage becomes really important to understand how do I work hard to live the Christian life? It, it, once Jesus saves me, I, I can't be lazy and just give up. I, I need to work hard at living the Christian life. How do I go about doing that? Philippians chapter three, verses 12 to chapter four, verse one is our section this morning. I wanna read it here this morning because it's telling us how to strain towards the goal. Listen and see if you can pick up what it's saying here. It says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if any one of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The main idea that this text that Paul is teaching to the Philippian church and the Holy Spirit now is teaching to us today is that we must strain towards the goal of Christ-likeness. Strain towards the goal of Christ-likeness. Put every effort into pursuing spiritual maturity. We're going to have to put all the work, all the effort, all that we can into this task of being like Jesus Christ because he saved us. So three things I want to show you here this morning that I believe this text is trying to help us in this task of how do we actually strain towards the goal. And the first one is this, write this down here this morning, it's maximize your effort. Straining towards the goal of Christ-likeness means you must maximize your effort. You must maximize gospel effort is the clarity that I hope to bring to it. So look at verse 12. Paul says here in verse 12 that he has not obtained this. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. And I got to reading and I was like, well, what is the this that Paul is referring to? Not that I've already obtained this. What is the this? And I think we just simply go back to the previous verse to understand what Paul's talking about here. He says that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. That's the this. He says, not that I've already obtained this resurrection from the dead or am 
perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So we're going to see here three times Paul kind of has this idea of straining. He says, press on. He says, strain forward. And then he says, press on again in these verses. And in verse 13, he says, the reason why we do that is because I'm not perfect. I don't consider myself perfect. So there's, there's work to be done. Even though Jesus gave me the gift of salvation, I'm not perfectly like Jesus yet. That's true of all of us, right? I mean, just think about the last 24 hours of your life. Could could you say that you've been 100% holy the way Christ is holy in the last 24 hours of your life? No. <laughs> Unless you're deceived or arrogant, you there's the only reason why you would say that because we all recognize there's sinfulness within us. And so there's work to be done. And so then he says in verse 13, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but what I do is I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the goal. He says here, I forget what is in the past. Now, some people think that he's forgetting his past sins. That's not really what he's referring to. What he's saying is in this Christian walk that I have, I'm forgetting all the successes that I've had previously because I'm not going to rest on my laurels. You think about where running comes from and the ancient idea of marathon, right? In the Greek times, the guy ran to marathon and now we run the 26.2 miles because that's the distance that was said that he covered. And, and at that particular day and age, if you were to win, win the race, you, you, would, you would get that laurel wreath, the wreath with the leaves on it, right? And, and it's, he's basically, it's the idea, I'm not going to look at what's behind and rest on my laurels because if I'm running a race, and I look behind, it slows me down. I'm not thinking about any of the successes of the past. I'm pressing on to greater spiritual maturity. I'm striving for more perfection to be like Jesus, not looking behind me. And, and what am I striving for? It says in verse 14, it's the prize of the upward call of God. It's resurrection life. The upward call of God is this idea of obtaining the resurrection from the dead. And he's saying, that's what the goal is. I'm, I'm not looking behind until I get there, until I get to Christ-likeness. And then in verse 15, he says, this is how mature people, people who are perfect in their thinking, not perfect in who their character is, but maturity there. This is how people who are down the road of race think. They, they don't look behind them. They keep going and pressing on for the goal. And then it says in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we've obtained. This resurrection of life, hold true to that. This is what's been given to us, this newness of life. And so we must pursue Christ-likeness. Really, the summary of this whole, these whole first from verses 12 to 16, is it could just simply be saying, pursue Christ-likeness. Pursue the perfection of who Jesus Christ is. Be perfect because I'm perfect. Be holy because I'm holy. It says in other places in scripture. And so pursue that. Now notice what I've said here in just the sermon outline, I said, maximize your effort. And, and that might cause a significant question in you. If you've been in the Christian faith for very long, you know that it's not your effort that saves you. And so you, you, you might be saying, does this mean, pastor, that you're saying that I need to be working for my salvation? Because that seems inconsistent with scripture. Effort would seem to say that there's this, this thing that I contribute. It's my effort that's contributing to my Christ-likeness. And I want to bring some clarity to that. 
We, we see here, first of all, that the reason I say that there needs to be effort is because of the three times that Paul says in these verses, press on or strain, it's the same idea. He says in verse 12, press on to make it my own. In verse 13, strain forward to what lies ahead. In verse 14, I press on to the goal. What's Paul saying? Well, he's saying that he is putting effort or work into living up to the position that he has been given by Jesus Christ. He's saying because of the grace of Jesus Christ and my faith that that's what saves me, that, that now I'm going to work out of that belief that I am in Jesus Christ. I'm not working to attain Jesus Christ. It's because I have Jesus Christ that now I'm motivated to go and try to be like him. And this is consistent to what the Bible says. We see the Bible uh, say in a couple key areas um, that, um, that, that we are saved by grace alone with no human effort. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is the, the, the most important verse in this. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. So, so clearly, Paul in Ephesians is writing and he's saying that your salvation, moving from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, your conversion is by grace. You can't boast in it. It's not anything that you do. It's just this grace gift. You, you are given a gift that you don't deserve. And if you receive it by faith, if you believe it by faith, that then you are saved. So it can't be that we work and contribute to our salvation. It also says in Romans chapter 5 that our position is secure because Jesus Christ justifies us. Now, it's important to understand this idea of justifying is a legal term. It's what would be used in court documents that literally means to declare righteous. So, so Jesus declares us righteous. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are declared righteous. It's not because we are right. It's because the legal terminology of how God sees us is declared righteous because of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid for our sins so that he can declare us righteous. He said, it's all been put behind us. He's paid for it. So your position is secure. So we see here that the consistent teaching of scripture is that you do not work for your salvation. And actually, you can see it right in the section of verses that we're looking at here today as well. Because in verse 12, it says that Christ Jesus has made me his own. And in verse 14, it says the call of God in Christ Jesus, the invitation of God to us, it's telling us that we are saved because Jesus made us our own and because God called us and he's effective in that. It's nothing that we did to get us positionally to a place where we are saved. It's all God's work. It can't be that Paul is working for his position of being saved. That's not what Paul's pressing onto. Instead, what we see here is that Paul is working to live a life in agreement with the position that's been given to him by Jesus Christ as someone who's saved from sin. That his perfect or his perfection is a status obtained, transferred to him from Jesus onto him. He did nothing to earn it or deserve it. 
And so Paul is saying that he is not working for his salvation, but he's working out his salvation. That's actually something Paul said right in the letter that he wrote to the Philippians a little bit earlier. He said, he said, work out your salvation. He didn't say work for your salvation. Look at Romans, just a page over. Philippians 12, 2 verses 12 and 13 says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is so clear on this. He's not saying press on to earn your salvation. He's saying press on because you have salvation to work out what that means, to live out what the, that means into your life. I was thinking a little bit about how, how does that make sense to us? And, 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 and I thought of two very imperfect illustrations. Uh, let me tell him, you'll see some of the holes in it, but, but the first illustration is this. It's, it's the idea of a university graduate, somebody who graduates from university with a, with a degree in, let's pick engineering. They, degree with their, they, they graduate with their degree of engineering. Now, because they have that degree of an engineer, their position is known as an engineer, do they get to not work and just retire as soon as they graduate seminary? No, they graduate seminary, they get the position, and then they work out that's the rest of their life. Here's another illustration, uh, the race illustration. Uh, I found out that you actually have to be invited into some of the major marathons in the world. And so if I was invited into the New York City Marathon, it would mean I would have a position in the race, but I still have to actually go now run the race. And that's what Paul's saying here is your position is secure. You've been invited into the race. You've been given the diploma of salvation. Now you have to go run the race. You have to go work, your, for, work out your diploma in that particular way. So how do we do that then? How do we effort? How do we work out our salvation? Remember, we, we don't gain our salvation uh, by, by any means of our own working, but instead we're going to make it our own. That's what Paul says. Uh, I'm pressing on to make it my own in verse 12. So how do we do that? Well, we have a problem. Even when we're saved, even when our position of salvation is secure, we, we have this problem where we lack being like Jesus Christ. Do you ever feel that? Like, you know, man, I've been saved, but man, I, I just haven't, things have not gone well recently. I am not reflecting the holiness of God. I don't have the attitudes that he says I'm supposed to have. I don't have the thoughts. I'm, my actions are contrary. I'm a sinner. I, I, I'm saved, but I still, does anybody ever feel that way? I, I'm, not, I'm not the only one, right? Yeah, we, we have to work out our salvation and make it our own because we lack Christ-likeness and the ongoing transformation of becoming like Christ because we forget what God has done for us in the gospel. I really think that that's at the very core of it. We forget what God has done to allow us to receive the gift of Christ-likeness. So we kind of forget how, what that gift is and forget how to live that out. Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 9 speaks of this. He, he says this. I'm going to read all six of these verses. 2 Peter 1, 3 to 9 says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us 
his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities, verse 9, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I think verse 9 happens because we have a shrinking view of the gospel. We, we are blind and forget what, that we were cleansed from our former sins, and, and that's what Paul's trying to say. You've got to press into remembering those things. So I, I want to draw a little chart for us, and, and it's really the, the story of each of us where over time we come to this place where uh, this point of conversion And, and at the point of conversion, there's actually two really important things that begin to happen. Uh, on the one side, we begin to have a growing awareness of God's holiness. And, and then the second thing is, we have a growing awareness of my sinfulness. And, and at this point of conversion, what, what begins to happen is we, we realize there's this gap, this gap right here between God's holiness and my sinfulness. And, and I need to fill this gap and I can't fill this gap in my own strength, in my own power. And we, we read the Bible and we realize that God has actually provided everything we need to fill the gap between sin and holiness through his son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth, lived a perfect life, a holy life to completion, 100% perfect, but then died for the sin that we each had so that when we believe in him, we attain the resurrection from the dead. We attained new life, eternal life. And what happens here is we begin to see that Jesus the, and, the, and his message of the gospel is the thing that fills the gap between holiness and my sin. And that when I trust in Jesus, that he gives me this new life, that he declares me righteous. But, and what happens is that we start out at the very beginning and we have kind of this limited understanding. We, we know that we have, that God's this holy and that we are this sinful and we see this gap right here and Jesus Christ fills it and, and it's just that particular awareness that happens. But what happens is over time, we begin to see, oh, wait a second, God is actually more holy than what I thought at the point of conversion and because we see God is more holy, we begin to see, man, my life really doesn't match up. I thought it just didn't match up in a few ways. It actually doesn't match up in all sorts of different ways. And what happens is the gap grows bigger between the idea of God's holiness and who my sinfulness is. And what that happens is there is an appreciation for who Jesus Christ is. And we begin to see, oh, you know what? 
I praise God because Jesus isn't just uh, enough to fill this gap. He's enough to fill the bigger gap and ultimately the, the biggest gap that exists between God's holiness and my sin. That, that's really what the cross of Jesus Christ needs to continue to do. We need to press on to see that the cross fills the gap between God's holiness and our, and our sinfulness. The problem is something, something that's the way it should happen. <laughs> we, we begin to see this chart over time happens. And as we see that there's this growing gap of God's holiness and my sin, a problem can occur in the Christian walk if we don't press on and strain the way that Paul is talking about here. Because what happens is we see that Jesus and his cross fills a gap this size. But if we're not pressing into this, we think that the cross continues to remain the same size even though the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness grows even further. And so we have what's called a shrinking view of the cross. It's not, maybe the cross shrinks, but the point is the cross does not grow to fill the gap. And so there's all this area that we have this problem where sin and holiness is happening, but the cross is not filling that in. Our tendency is to minimize the cross and the gap that it fills, and that's how we shrink it. And we do this in two ways. The first is that we minimize how holy God is. If we're not pressing on to see how holy God is, we, we just think that God is this holy, and we, we, we never let him get to the true holiness to what it is because we don't have a cross big enough to fill it. Or there's a second thing, we elevate our own righteousness. We don't think that we're this sinful down here. We, we just continue to say, well, I'm sinful, but I'm not as bad as everybody else. I'm just kind of this sinful and Christ is enough for me here. And we must counteract this tendency of shrinking the cross by pressing on and straining into and looking and seeing how holy God is and how sinful I am and how adequate and sufficient the cross of Jesus Christ is to fill the gap between those two things. That's how we are to press on into this. It's not working for righteousness. It's working to see how sufficient God is to give salvation to us, no matter how big the gap is between God and our sinfulness. And that's why in verse 16, it says, hold true. Hold true to what you obtained. You've obtained a cross that doesn't shrink or stay the same size. It says right here, like my previous chart, Hold true to the idea of what you've obtained is completely adequate and sufficient for every gap that is between you and, and God. I love this word, by the way, in verse 16 that says, oh, hold true. That's the ESV. In the NIV, it, it, says, it might say to live up to. It's actually a word that Paul doesn't use very often in the Greek. The Greek word is storchio, and it means to march in military rank. So the idea of, of keeping in step in an orderly fashion, it also means to conform to a virtue or, or to, the idea of walking in a straight way. And in this, Paul is saying, hold on to what you've obtained. Keep walking in step with the gospel. Keep, keep conforming to the virtues that the gospel has. Walk in step with those things. Maximize your effort to keep in step with the gospel, with the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul means here. 
let's think a little bit about what that means for how we live our life. What, so what? So, so, so what should this do to us? Well, Paul tells us, hold true, right? And, and, and really what, what this idea is, is that we should repent and believe and live in, in the gospel way that saved us. I would just say this. Today, you may need to repent of shrinking the cross. You may need to repent of minimizing the holiness of God. You may need to repent of elevating your righteousness and considering yourself more righteous than you actually are. You need to come to a spot where you mourn that you think inaccurately about yourself or about God or about the adequacy of the cross. Holding true also means that you don't just repent of those things, but then you begin to believe. You grow in your, your awareness of God's holiness and your sinfulness to believe that the cross is sufficient for all of those things. That's how you press on. That's how you maximize your effort. You continue to believe that Christ has done enough, more than enough for your standing before God. And that's how you live out then you hold true to these things, you hold on, you, you give maximum effort to holding on to the gospel, that's what you're straining for. You're holding to the gospel and the belief in Jesus in these things. So how do you strain toward the goal of Christ-likeness? We've said number one is to maximize your effort, maximize your effort to hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's something else Paul says here as well. There's a second thing, and write this down, we need to mimic godly examples. Look at verses 17 and 19. We are to strain to the goal of Christ-likeness by imitating others who are following Jesus Christ. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Not only are you to put maximum effort and straining towards the gospel in these things, but look at others who are doing the very same thing. Imitate me, Paul is saying, and follow others who are imitating Christ Jesus as well. So one of the most powerful teaching tools is example. It's, it's when, we, when we model something. And so we come up with a phrase, the idea that there's more that is caught than is taught. Many times we think that teaching is the idea of instruction and you tell somebody what to do and they remember it and do it, but really they do far more through modeling and example than they do from being instructed formally in a classroom. This is nowhere more pertinent than the story of uh, of an agnostic man, somebody who didn't believe in God. He was actually at the point of, of great desperation in his own life and, and, and was about ready to commit suicide, but had heard of this idea that, that of Christianity and wanted to check it out one more time. So although he was depressed and suicidal, he hired a private investigator to go and watch the pastor down the road by the name of Will Houghton. Will Houghton was the pastor in Chicago who was the president of the Moody Bible Institute at the time. And as this private investigator dug into his life, what he found was a man who was not perfect and yet genuine to his beliefs and genuine to living like Jesus Christ. And as, as this agnostic man read the report, he was so impressed by it that he came and heard the preaching of the gospel, turned his life over to Jesus, and then sent his daughter to the Bible school to be trained by William Houghton at it. You see, the example was what caused him to see Christ. And, and what Paul is saying here is when he's saying, imitate me, imitate Christ-likeness in me. Paul's not perfect. He said in verse 12, I'm not perfect, but he is mature according to verse 15. And so he's calling people to follow his example because he's somebody who is actually following Jesus himself. 
1 Corinthians actually outlines for this for us. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 15 to 17, it says, Paul writes this, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Notice what Paul says is, imitate me. I urge you to imitate me. And then he says, look at one of my protégés, Timothy. I sent him to you to remind you of what it means to live like Christ because he lives like Christ. He's imitating me, so you can imitate me too. He's not saying he's perfect and he has it all together. He's saying, I'm imitating Jesus. So you can imitate me. Mimic good examples. That's what the text is telling us in verse 17. Follow good examples. But there's also a warning. There's a warning here as well in verse 18. You'll notice, be careful with the example that you do follow because not everybody is a good example. Not everybody's a godly example. For many in verse 18, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Not everybody is an example to follow, and you need the discernment to know which is which. He's not just talking about don't follow people outside the church. He's saying there's some who are in the church who are actually walking as enemies of Christ. You think, well, wait a second. What would that look like? Well, it tells us in verse 19. It says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So what we see here are three undesired characteristics of enemies whose end is destruction. Notice it's a warning. Don't imitate these. It ends in destruction. It says, number one, their God is their belly. It means that they, they follow after their appetites and desires. It leads them all over. Whatever they, they kind of desire in the moment, that, that's, they're not grounded in truth because they're just following their appetites. What they worship bounces back and forth between what they feel in their belly. Secondly, it says they glory in their shame. They're proud about what they do. They're sinners and they're like, well, but, but you know, God saves us and I'm, I'm okay. And I'm, they don't have a life that's submitted and surrendered to the Lord. The pride isn't even so much in the boast of their mouth as it is in the fact that they don't repent and they don't change how they live. And then finally, it says their minds are set on earthly things. By the way, earthly here is not the idea of just, you know, normal living. It's the idea of sinful things. And so the things they think about, the things their minds are about, are, are things that are, that are sinful things in that way. And what, what Paul's saying here is avoid these enemies. These are the characteristics that you can discern to know who these enemies are. Avoid them. The practical application for this just comes in this way. Notice... Paul says here, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Eyes on. Identify examples to imitate. Get your eyes on, this is the practical application. Get your eyes on the imitation of those who are following after Jesus Christ. The way we strain towards Christ-likeness is by imitating godly examples. So let me ask you, can you identify other men and women who are godly examples in your life. 
There's, is, is there somebody that, that's older? Listen, not walking perfectly, but they're trying to follow Jesus and you should ask them, hey, how do you do this? Is there a peer who can encourage you and that you can be accountable to and that you can say, hey, let's walk this Christian life together. Get your eyes on identifying examples that you can follow along together. And in, as you do that, discern the enemies that you should stay away from. Do you have that discernment? Do you know who you should be seeking to imitate because they're imitating Jesus Christ and who you should avoid because they're actually enemies of the cross? Listen, I'm not saying that we should have a massive uh, 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 reveal party in our church in these things, but it, it does call us to discernment in this. Have your eyes on those who you should be imitating. It should be godly examples who are following Jesus Christ. They're the ones who are going to help you to strain towards the goal and not delay you or pull you back in this race of living the Christian life the way Christ would have us. So we're straining towards the goal of Christ-likeness. First of all, we maximize our efforts. Secondly, we mimic godly examples. Here's the third thing Paul tells us. We are to be motivated by the end. We need to be motivated by what's at the end, the goal at the end. We need to strain to the goal of Christ-likeness because Jesus is going to transform us. There's a reward at the end that's so great and awesome and wonderful. It should motivate us to pursue and to keep running and to not give up and to find others who can come alongside us and we can mimic them. It says here in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. This is an awesome statement. This, uh, this word citizenship is not used very often in the New Testament. This is one of the only places. And, and in it is the idea that there's this, there's this political overtone. Paul actually chooses this word carefully. Remember, he's writing the book of Philippians to the city of Philippi. And the city of Philippi was unique within the Roman Empire because it was a Roman colony, which meant it followed Roman laws rather than their traditional customs and way of, ways of governing themselves. It also meant that those who were in the city, those who were part of the city, were therefore then Roman citizens. They were considered as the, the same people who lived in Rome, the same status as the people who were living in Rome. And, and the people of Philippi would have taken pride in this. This was a, was a special position in the world at that particular time. They had this civic pride. They had the best passport the most powerful passport because they were Roman citizens. And Paul says here, but our citizenship is in heaven. There's something even better than being a citizen of Philippi, a Roman citizen. It's having the passport that says that you are a citizen of heaven, of God's kingdom. That's what's so much better here. And you should be motivated because to, 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 to strain towards the goal because you have this citizenship. What better place to belong to? What better motivation to provide? So one of the things I love watching about the Olympics is, is the opening ceremony and, and particularly the people who get to carry the flag for their particular country, right? They're representing their country and there's great honor to that. And they're so proud of that honor. And, and, and it, it's this idea like you are a citizen of heaven. Hold fast to this position. Press on to, to recognize that position in your life, to, to, to show that you are a genuine believer in this way. And there's actually a number of implications that come from that as he defines the rest of it here in the rest of verse 20 onwards. We're going to see three implications. Let me read it. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him 
even to subject all things to himself. Paul reminds them of three things about in, in the citizenship that they have. The first is that there is a reminder that there is a day when we will give an account for how we have run the race of life. We will give an account as to whether or not we pressed on and we strained forward in the position of our citizenship as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a family member of God. It says that, that we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We await his return. What, do you know what happens when he returns? It says he's coming to judge the quick and the dead. He's coming to this time not to save, but to judge. And so the reminder here is we're going to give an account. So live your life today with the reminder that the test is coming. You're going to give an account for how you lived, how you pressed forward and strained towards the goal in this life. The second thing you'll notice is that he talks about our bodies will be transformed. Our low, we will have, but we, it identifies and says we have lowly bodies right now. And this is, should be a reminder to us. The fact that it it's so hard to be like Christ. The fact that our bodies get worn out and get tired and, and it's difficult to actually pursue Christ in these things should show us that we have not arrived at our final destination and goal yet. That's what he's saying here. Remember, first of all, you're going to give an account. Second of all, you're not to the finish line yet. You need to keep running the race. Strain. Keep going. Work hard. You're not across the finish line that's ahead of us yet. So keep going. And then third, notice that Christ will draw lowly bodies into a glorious existence. It says he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That's awesome. You realize that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and, and that his resurrection body was a glorious, glorified, resurrected body that will be, that is similar to the one that we are going to have when we are raised from the dead and live for eternity with him. Do you know that the body you currently have is not the body you will have for eternity? It's not fit for eternity. It wears out, but we're going to get resurrection bodies that are prepared for eternity, to be able to live for eternity. And it says here, Christ has the power to do that by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. The fact that he is Lord, even though there's people who don't say it, that he is Lord no matter what they say or not, is, shows, demonstrates the power that he can actually transform our bodies into this, into this way. So we're citizens of heaven and we should be motivated by these things, motivated to keep going because you're going to have a finish line where you give an account. You're not there yet, but Christ has the power to get you over that line. That should motivate us to press on and strain to the goal to be like Jesus Christ, to keep following after him, to keep looking at God's holiness, seeing our sinfulness, believing in the gospel, strain and press on to attain all that you've been given in that. So that's why he writes chapter four, verse one, he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, here's the instruction, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The application here is to stand firm. Stand firm in the position that you've been given, the citizenship that you've been given, the status that you've been declared righteous because of the grace of God. Stand firm in that. Keep pressing into that. Keep pursuing that. There's an admonishment to tell you, don't be lazy. Don't give up. Keep working to be like Jesus, the position that's been gifted to you through Jesus Christ. What I love in the midst of this verse there's an instruction surrounded by this deep love that Paul has for them. We see here four different times love is expressed by Paul for the Philippians as he tells them, press on, strain forward. He says, 
my brothers, which indicates a familial relationship, a family relationship. Then he says, whom I love and long for. Then he says, my joy and my crown gives the instruction. And then he says, my beloved. As he instructs and admonishes and forcefully tells them to press on and not give up and strain towards the goal. He's saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. I want to help you in this. His love for them is overwhelming. And he's saying, the reason that it's worth the effort to strain is because you're a citizen. Your position is secure. You're in Jesus Christ. You will be raised from the dead. So we're told here in this passage, just in summary and conclusion, we are to strain towards the goal of Christ-likeness. That's what Paul's saying. That's the instruction that he's giving. Strain towards it. Don't give up. Work hard. Put maximum effort. It should feel exhausting and sweaty. And, and listen, that's okay. That's, uh, keep going. Keep going. Keep running the race and get to the finish line. Put every effort into pursuing spiritual maturity. Put every effort into looking at how holy God is and increasing your awareness of that. Keep growing in your awareness of how sinful you actually are and then appreciate the gospel. Keep looking the look of faith to the gospel, repenting where you need, living in the power of the gospel where he calls you to strain towards the goal of spiritual maturity, of being perfect like Jesus Christ. Don't give up. Don't ever give up until the end, until that upward call of Jesus Christ. Don't ever give up. Every moment of this life, strain to the goal of Christ-likeness. Let's pray and ask him for his help. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, even as we've studied it here today, we first had to get through the confusion of are we working for our salvation? And we see very clearly that's not the case, that the salvation that we have has nothing to do with whether or not we're good enough or strong enough or, or Lord, it, it's, we contribute nothing to our salvation. We declare that and believe that here again today. And yet at the same time, we see that because we've been given this gift of salvation, your call is that we pursue and strain towards Christ-like perfection. Lord, like Paul, we can say we haven't obtained it. We're not already perfect. And so we know there's still more to go. And Lord, we're asking you, inspire us to not give up. Lord, help us to press on, to strain to the goal, to hold true to what we have obtained. Lord, would you help us to live as in community as brothers and sisters in Christ, encouraging one another so that we can mimic Christ-likeness in each other. Lord, would you motivate us by what we receive, the goal, the reward at the end of this heavenly citizenship that will begin when you transform our bodies. Lord, we, we long for that day, but until that time, would you help us to stand firm in the Lord in these things? Would you help us to pursue Christ-likeness? Lord, in any way, if we can identify today where we have not been like you, would you help us to repent? Do that work now, Lord, we pray. And then to believe in the cross of Jesus Christ and to live out the gospel implications because we are not giving up running the race of the Christian life you've given to us. Lord, help us to hold to the gospel through it all. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.